Well, hey, good morning to you. If you are new this morning, or if you're just joining us, or even if you missed a few weeks, let me get you caught up a little bit. Uh, we are preaching our way through the book of 1 Samuel, and this morning we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 11. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 11. Now for these past two weeks, we've been looking at the man who was called to be Israel's first king, a man by the name of Saul. And we've discovered a few things about this man in chapters 9 to 10. So let me review those quickly for you. First off, in chapter 9, he's called a Benjamite. All right, that's probably weird to those of you who haven't been with us. Why did they just do that? Um, the Benjamites were the lowest of all the tribes in Israel. They were despised. They were hated. Uh, go back and read Judges 19 to 21 this week if you haven't already, and that will give you the backstory to understanding the shuddering. So Saul was a Benjamite. Not from... Nice, I, I just forgot, so there you go. He was not from the tribe of Judah. Back in the book of Genesis chapter 49, we learned that the ruling tribe, the kingly tribe, was the tribe of Judah. That's the tribe from which David will come, and ultimately from which Christ will come. So when the prophet said, a Benjamite is going to be your king, that, that didn't sit well. And we as the readers, when we see that in the text, we're, we're supposed to know things are not going to go well. This is not the right man for the job. We also learned that he was tall, and the only people noted in the Bible for height are enemies of Israel. Saul was the only Israelite singled out for being tall. Additionally, he was beautiful, he was handsome, he was good-looking, and we learned that all the people who are good-looking in the Bible either fail miserably or lead very difficult lives. And last week we saw that this was a man who was not characterized by strength and power and fortitude. Rather, he was a man who's characterized by fear. And consequently, the nation, the army, those following him will become fearful people. And he will prevent the people from realizing their covenant blessings as promised by God. In summary, he is an enemy of Israel, an enemy of God and unfit to lead God's people. Now, you'll notice that the title is different than the title in your bulletin. Originally, when I sent this in, I think I had something down like, the only good thing Saul ever did, or something like that. And it's true, this is the only good thing that we have recorded in Scripture, chapter 11, that Saul ever did. But I'm hard on Saul, and for good reason. He's an enemy of God and his people. But I thought, you know... In this chapter, chapter 11, he actually does what he's supposed to do. So let's just give Saul his week. So we're going to look today at Saul's finest hour. All right, I'm softening a little bit. Saul's finest hour. Okay, so we're going to be in chapter 11. And here's how chapter 11, verse 1, begins. It says this, Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. Well, first of all, let me just point out, the name Nahash is a really cool name. It means snake. Isn't that cool? That's the Hebrew word for snake, Nahash. This guy's name is the snake. That's a great name. I would love to be the snake. Except for the, you know, bad connotations that go with that. But it's a cool name. So here we have the snake from 
Ammon, he's an Ammonite, and he goes up to the city in Israel called Jabesh-Gilead, and he besieges it. He lays siege to it. Does that seem a little abrupt? Like we just jumped right into the middle of a story? It should. It should feel somewhat incomplete. Because it is. So, now, for a few minutes, I get to just geek out with you and talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? So this is going to feel a little less like a sermon and a little more like a lecture, but this is where I get really excited. The Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, people. This is amazing stuff. Okay, we're going to get back to Nahash in a minute, but we need to look at a couple of things. We're talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is what they look like. So what in the world are the Dead Sea Scrolls? Here's another image. Some are very complete. Some are very fragmented. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in a cave uh, around the Dead Sea, sort of in close proximity to Jericho and to Jerusalem. We'll look at a map in a few minutes. Back in 1947. And this is the most significant archaeological, uh, archaeological discovery of modern times. So what are they? They are a collection of manuscripts. Uh, at this point, there are a little bit over 900 manuscripts that have been put back together or unrolled. And these scrolls contain approximately 220 biblical manuscripts. Now, at this point, as of two years ago, every book in the Old Testament is accounted for at the Dead Sea. Um, the site there is called Qumran, at Qumran. And there are 670 non-biblical manuscripts that give us just a tremendous amount of history about the biblical world at the time of Christ. So these manuscripts were discovered back in 1947 by a shepherd, and uh, they are our oldest copies of the Old Testament. So I'm going to geek out a little bit further on you. Our Old Testaments are based off of a manuscript from 1009 A.D. 1009 A.D. That's fairly recent, right? Now, that particular manuscript has a long line of copying from scribes that go back a long ways. But the Old Testament in our English Bible, they're based on this manuscript from 1009 A.D. These manuscripts get us all the way back to 250 B.C. That's a long ways back. And here's the cool part about the Dead Sea Scrolls, these biblical manuscripts. They confirm the accuracy and the authenticity of our text. There's not a lot of variation from the 1009 A.D. document all the way back to these documents from about 250 B.C. That's encouraging, right? We can have a high degree of certainty in the accuracy of our Old Testament because they're confirmed by these texts from 250 B.C. All right, so here's where they are discovered. I was, I was telling my wife this morning, there's a whale in the picture. Um, there was a, a <laughs> I had to cut this map from a Bible program I have, and it had all these weird coordinates up there, and I just thought that was kind of goofy, so I thought a whale would be more fun. So we have a whale. Uh, I don't know. Um, this is where they were discovered. So let me just turn quickly here. Right around this area where I'm pointing, that's where you have Jerusalem and Jericho and some of these major cities in the Bible. Up here is where Jesus ministered. And so right here, Jerusalem, Jericho, and then you have the Dead Sea. So right on the north, 
you get oriented, the northwestern coast are where all these caves are, and this is what it looks like. So is that, is that okay to see? Can you see that all right? So as you can tell, this is kind of a vast, barren landscape, but this is what Qumran, the site where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, this is what it looks like. And the scrolls were hidden in caves. See that cave right there? The scrolls were hidden in caves. So as the Roman army was approaching in AD 70 to wipe out Jerusalem, the people who were up on this hill at Qumran saw them coming. And they said, let's take our vast library, our vast collection of documents, and hide them. Otherwise, the Romans are going to find them and destroy them. So they hid them in these caves where they remained hidden from A.D. 70 all the way until 1947. Nobody ever knew they were there. Isn't that amazing? So here's why this matters for us this morning. Among the manuscripts found there was, of course, several copies of the book of 1 Samuel. And actually, 1 and 2 Samuel go together. They were the Samuel scrolls. And in one of the scrolls, called 1Q Sam A, we get this paragraph that was part of the original biblical text of Samuel. So if you look at the manuscript that we have, there are giant wormholes all over it. And what this Dead Sea Scroll manuscript does is give us back some of the words that we're missing. Isn't that cool? So, last week I talked about Bible translations. Do you remember that? And I said the reason why I like this one is because it puts in some of these Dead Sea Scroll fragments that Bible translators are now starting to add back into the text. And this is a very important one. So check this out. At the end of 1 Samuel chapter 10, if you'll recall, go ahead and look at the text, verse 27 says this. But some scoundrels said of Saul, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. Okay? That's where this paragraph goes. You can look at it on the screen. I'm going to read it here for you. It says this. Now Nahash, the snake, Nahash, king of the Ammonites, oppressed the Gadites and the Reubenites severely. He gouged out all their right eyes and struck terror and dread in Israel. Not a man remained among the Israelites beyond the Jordan River whose right eye was not gouged out by Nahash, king of the Ammonites, except that 7,000 men fled from the Ammonites and they entered the city of Jabesh-Gilead. About a month later, and now in your Bibles, this is where it picks up, 11.1, about a month later, Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. Isn't that cool? That gives us the context of chapter 11. It's giving us verses back. God is preserving his word. Is that not amazing? Can I get an amen for that? Amen. amen. All right, so here's what's going on in our chapter. The snake, king of the Ammonites, he's oppressing two tribes in Israel. The Gadites, the tribe of Gad, and the Reubenites, the tribe of Reuben. So let me just back up to our map real quick here. Okay. So here's the Jordan River. It runs north and south in Israel's territory, okay? So a couple of tribes, back when Moses was telling people where they could live, a couple of tribes settled here, beyond the Jordan River on the other side. 
most of the tribes lived here. That's what's called the promised land. But a couple of these tribes, Gad and uh, Reuben, they settled on the other side of the Jordan River. So this Nahash guy, the king of Ammon, as you can see, which is in that same territory, he starts oppressing the people of God. And what he's doing is he's gouging out their right eye. We're going to get to that in just a minute. He's gouging out their right eye. And so the text says that nobody remained in that area whose right eye had not been gouged out, except for 7,000 men who fled. And when they fled, they entered this town called Jabesh Gilead. All right, back in verse 1. Join me in the text. Nahash the Ammonite goes up and he besieges Jabesh, uh, Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh say to him, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. All right, we're going to flip around in our Bibles a little bit here. So as you can see, Ammon is on the other side of the Jordan River and these tribes in Israel settled in this area. And this town, Jabesh Gilead, is located very close to where Ammon is. So this guy, Nahash, is oppressing the people of God, and he's fighting to get this territory back. Turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 11. So why is Nahash doing this? Judges chapter 11. Previously in Judges chapter 6, we get introduced to this guy named Jephthah. Jephthah. He was a judge who would rise up as God empowered him and saved the people of Israel. In chapter 11, we see this. Jephthah, the Gileadite, he was from Gilead, he was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Okay, this is a little locker room talk. Here's what's going on. Gilead was the name of a person, and Gilead was the name of a territory. So what the text is saying is that, hey, this guy's mom was a prostitute, the guy Gilead was with this prostitute, and Gilead, the whole territory, not just the man, is, is uh, this guy's father. So it's kind of, a, kind of a poke at this guy's lineage. The text says this in verse 2. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were growing up, they drove Jephthah away because they were saying, hey, you can't have any inheritance among us. You are not the product of mom and dad. You're the product of dad and this prostitute over here. So go away from us. So Jephthah fled, verse 3, from his brothers, and he settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of, does your text say scoundrels there? Sons of Belial. If you're new and you haven't heard us talk about the sons of Belial, the sons of Belial are the enemies of the nation of Israel. Belial was the god of death. So if you are a son of Belial or a daughter of Belial, that means you are an enemy of the people. So Jephthah flees and he settles with these scoundrels. So sometime later, here come the Ammonites and they start fighting against Israel. Verse 5, the elders of Gilead, they go back to Jephthah and they say, hey, come, be our commander so we can fight against Ammon. Well, verse 7, Jephthah says to him, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know I'm a great warrior, but didn't you drive me out of my father's house? So why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Well, the elders of Gilead say to him, verse 8, okay, you're right, but hey, listen, now we're turning to you. Please come and fight the Ammonites. You will be head over us and over everybody who lives in Gilead. You're going to be the man. Please come save us. 
So Jephthah says, okay, suppose you take me back and I fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives me victory. Will I really be your leader? Verse 10, the elders say, yes, God is our witness. We will certainly do this thing. So Jephthah comes back. They make him the leader. And then he sends this letter to the Ammonites. And he says to the king of the Ammonites, hey, leave us alone. Why are you attacking the people of God? And the king of the Ammonites says, hey, listen, when you guys came out of, or out of Egypt, verse 13, when you guys came out of the land of Egypt, you took my land. This area here, this is my land. You took it away from me. So, being a good historian, Jephthah rehearses the history of Israel during their exodus from Egypt up to the promised land. He says, no, we didn't take it from you. We were on a journey out of Egypt to go to the land that God promised us. And as we were on our way, we asked for permission to pass through the land. And you guys said no. And then you attacked us. And when you attacked us, God gave us victory. So this is where we settled. Is your God stronger than our God? No. Our God won. So this is our land. So if you want to back, come do battle with us. So he draws this line in the sand. And the text tells us that they did battle. And who do you think won? Israel. So Israel keeps this land. So here we are now, a couple hundred years later, and Jabesh says, I want my land back. So he's oppressing the people of God in order to get his land back. Okay, now jump with me to the end of the book of Judges, chapter 21. We're given a lot of background, but this is going to help us understand what's going on in the text. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Judges 19 to 21, and hopefully this past week you read it, and if you didn't, hopefully this coming week you'll read it. But here's what happens in Judges chapter uh, 21. Israel had gone to battle, and one of the rules of battle is that everybody needs to show up, and one group didn't show up. It was the tribe of Benjamin. So, good, good, you're getting it. That's fantastic. So the nation, I gotta, okay, I gotta word this now so I don't keep saying that name. Um, the nation goes to war against this tribe and eradicates it with the exception of 600 men who fled away. And um, I'm sorry, the tribe that didn't show up was, was the group from Jabesh Gilead. So they, they go and um, they wipe out Jabesh Gilead and there are 400 virgins there, 400 unmarried girls. And so they take these 400 unmarried girls and they give them to the 600 survivors of Benjamin. Read Judges 19 to 21 this week. Okay, so Saul, somebody ooh, you, you didn't ooh! <laughs> so Saul's family, the tribe of Benjamin, has married into the family of Jabesh Gilead. Okay, are you tracking with me? Let me recap, get back to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11. I know I'm throwing a lot of history at you, but here's the connection. Here's the connection. You've got to see this to understand our text this morning. Nahash the Ammonite goes up to besiege Jabesh Gilead because of a fight that was a couple hundred years old. He wants his land back. The people there say, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. We're going to un unpack the story a little bit more and see what actually happens. But eventually, King Saul is going to come back. Why does King Saul come in and help the people of Jabesh Gilead? There is family. 
There is family. Let's look at the text, verse 2, and see the response. But Nahash, the Ammonite, he replied this, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. Okay, that's gruesome. And we ask the question, why would you want to gouge out somebody's eye? Well, the text tells us one answer. It's for the reason of disgrace. So whenever you walk around as an Israelite and you've got one eye, everybody's going to know the snake owns these people. These people belong to the snake, Nahash. But there's another reason. They could keep doing their jobs. Here's why that's important. If you are Nahash, if you're the snake, and you attack these people, you collect tribute from them. So now you own them. You're going to take a portion of their crops, a portion of their sheep, a portion of their money. They owe you taxes. They owe you tribute. Otherwise, you're going to come back to them and completely wipe them out. So he wants you to be disgraced, and it's harder to fight back in battle with one eye. Try swinging a sword with one eye. It's tough to do. So he says, okay, I'm going to disgrace you. I'm going to make it hard for you to rally and retaliate against me, but you're still able to do your jobs. So I can continue to collect tribute from you as a people that's subjugated. So, verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 3, the elders, the leaders in Jabesh, they say to him, okay, mm, we don't want to do that. That's going to hurt. So, do us this favor. Give us seven days. This seems strange, but bear with me. Give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. And if no one comes to rescue us, then we will surrender to you. And apparently, there's no pushback from Nahash. He's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, you guys want to reach out to this loose federation of families and clans and tribes and try to rally the troops so that you can come and defeat me? Yeah, go, go ahead. You try that. Go send out messengers into your vast, barren wasteland and see if anybody comes to rescue you because he knew the people of Jabesh Gilead. He knew their bad reputation. He knew, that, he knew of their intermarriage to the Benjamites. No one's going to come to your rescue. Okay, but if they do, you're certainly not going to be able to amass a force big enough to defeat me. So that means I conquer more people and I get more tribute. Yeah, go, go find your deliverer. Good luck. I'll give you one week. Verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, that's the city where Saul lived, and reported these terms to him, they all wept aloud. And just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, what's wrong with everyone? Why are you all crying? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. So Saul's out working in the field. Not very kingly, right? This is an ordinary guy. This is an ordinary guy. He still had work to do. He didn't really know what to do with the kingship that had been given to him. So he's just out plowing the fields, being a normal guy. Comes back in. Everybody's crying. He's like, what's going on? And the messengers update him on what the snake had said to the people of Jabesh. Verse 6. When Saul heard these words, 
the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. Okay, we need to pause for just a minute. There's an interesting thing happening in the text here. The text says, the Spirit of God. In your Bibles, when you see the word Lord, we've talked about this, and it's in all capital letters, that word Lord is a reference to Yahweh, the name of Israel's God, the name of our God, God the Father. His name is Yahweh. That's, that's, that's the all caps word Lord. The text doesn't say that, does it? It says the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. That word in the Old Testament, God, can be used in a lot of different ways. It could be used as a reference to God the Father, but it's also the same word as the gods, like the gods of the other nations, the idols. It's kind of a vague word. It doesn't have any kind of proper name associated with it. That's why you see all capital letters Lord so often in the Bible, is when they're talking about God the Father and his covenant name, they use Yahweh, they use Lord. So when you see the word God, again, it can still be a reference to God, but there's a special marker in the text. We do see the spirit of Yahweh in the Samuel narratives, but it's never associated with Saul. It's always associated with David. Anytime you see the spirit having a connection with God, I'm sorry, with Saul, it's never, in, it's never using the covenant name of Yahweh. So what we learn from this is that there is a temporary ministry of the Holy Spirit on this man Saul to achieve a particular task. He's not associated with God's covenant name and God's covenant faithfulness. All right, are you tracking with me? So here's what happens. The Spirit of God comes on him, upon him. It's not inside of him. It's on him, and he empowers Saul to do this thing, and Saul is angry. He hears about this foreigner, this outsider, who's oppressing the people of God, and that stirs in him a call to action. So here's what he does. He took the oxen that he was working with, verse 7, and he cut them into pieces, and he sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and the prophet Samuel. Sound familiar? You got to read Judges 19 to 21 this week in order to get what's going on here. Back in Judges 19, the priest did this similar thing. Without getting into all the gory details of that story, he cut up a live woman and sent her body parts throughout Israel in order to rally the people together. Read Judges 19 to 21. Saul is acting in a similar fashion, although he's using an animal or a pair of animals and not a person. But here's the message he's sending. Your king is calling. It's time to fight. We need to go rescue our brothers and sisters who are across the Jordan River. Show up or I'm going to do this to your oxen. So what happens? The end of that verse, verse 7. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they came together as one. It worked. So Saul mustered them at this town called Bezek. And the men of Israel numbered about 300,000 and those of Judah about 30,000. So 330,000 Israelites respond in order to go after the enemy. 
And they tell the messengers who had brought this news about Nahash to them, he says, hey, go tell the men of Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, by the time it's late morning, you will be rescued. So the messengers went and they reported this to the men of Jabesh. And the city, the text says, was elated. It worked. Nahash the snake gave us a week to rally some kind of deliverer, and it worked. Our king is actually going to come fight for us. So, verse 10. They go to the Ammonites, and they said this. They said, okay, tomorrow we're going to surrender to you, and you can do to us whatever you like. In other words, enact your treaty and gouge out our right eye. You know, you gave us a week, snake, and it didn't work. We couldn't find a deliverer. So tomorrow, come tomorrow, and we will be your slaves. That's a good ploy. So the Ammonites let their guard down. They're probably drinking in their tents and in their camps and having a great time partying. Another victory for the snake. Then verse 11 happened. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. So this is a military tactic, a surprise attack from three different locations. And during the last watch of the night, so before the sun comes up in the sky and gets hot, which is what we referenced there in the previous verse, before the sun comes up and the last watch of the night, so early, early morning, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites, who were probably drunk or hungover, and they were sleeping, and they slaughtered them until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. And that phrase, no two of them were left together, is a reference to total destruction. They came in, wiped them out. There was no group or army that survived. People just ran away scared. Verse 12. We're going to wrap it up here. The people then said to Samuel, the prophet, who had made Saul the king, the people say to Samuel the prophet, hey, who was it? Remember back in the last chapter, who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us that we may put them to death. Which is what Saul should have done in the first place. Remember, look at your Bibles back in verse 26 of chapter 10. Saul goes to his hometown. He's accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. And in verse 27, the sons of Belial, the scoundrel, said, how can this guy save us? And they despised him and they brought him no gifts. And Saul, because he was afraid, did nothing to them. So now, the valiant men who were with Saul, who have witnessed what God has empowered him to do, they say, hey, where were those sons of Belial? Where were those enemies of God who said, this man Saul can't save us and he's not going to be our king? Bring him out. Let's kill him. Remember, this is, this is a rough time period. That doesn't sit well with us. But these are rough guys. These are not diplomats, all right? I mean, think about it from their perspective. How can we fight and be successful if there's dissension among us? If there's rebellion in the ranks, get rid of the rebellion. This was their mindset. Verse 13. But Saul, acting diplomatically for the first and last time, says this. No one's going to be put to death today. For this day, Yahweh has rescued Israel. Nice job, man. 
That's your calling. You did it. You were called to defeat Israel's enemies, to expand and secure her borders, to protect the people. And you responded in the right way. You did it. Nice job. Verse 14. Samuel says to the people, come on, let's go to Gilgal and renew the kingship there. So all the people left. They went to Gilgal. They officially made Saul king in the presence of Yahweh. And there they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord. And Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. This is Saul's finest hour. He did it right. This was the task to which he had been called, and he succeeded. Again, we know he was from the wrong tribe. We know he was tall. We know he was beautiful. We know he's a man of fear. That's coming next week. But this week, he nailed it. He did it right. This week, I, I, it was a long week. I'm going on day seven uh, of work. I was at the Linden Home Show, and those are long days. I saw a few of you there. Thanks for coming and saying hi. I saw Marianne there and a few others. Thanks for coming and saying hi. Uh, that broke up the monotony of the day. Uh, but these home shows are very long. You know, they're 10, 11 hour days. And so I had a lot of time. So when things kind of died down, I opened up my computer and I had the text in front of me there. And I was just, I was going over this episode in my head. And here's what struck me about it. Back in chapter 9, when the prophet says to Saul, hey, you're going to be king over Israel. Saul says this in verse 21. You don't need to shudder. It's okay. Saul answers, am I not a Benjamite? from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? I'm a nobody. I'm the ordinary. I'm the ordinary. Why do you say that I'm going to be the great deliverer, the king? I'm sitting there this week just thinking about his amazing response in this one chapter. Just a completely ordinary guy. When the chapter started, he was with his oxen plowing the field. And by the end of it, he's Israel's king. And I'm sitting there in this room full of salesmen and companies feeling completely ordinary. Nothing's distinguishing about us versus everybody else. And I thought, is this not a central theme throughout Scripture? How God uses the ordinary in order to accomplish extraordinary things? We see it all over the Bible. I mean, all the way even down to Jesus when he's born. Here you have the God-man born in a stable with cattle. Think about the guys that he used to start his church. Fishermen. Tax collectors, political zealots, completely ordinary people. In the text we read this morning from 1 Corinthians, Paul saying it's about the ordinary. God uses the ordinary in order to accomplish the extraordinary. So today I want to encourage you and myself in our ordinary lives that God is doing extraordinary things among us. I know being a mom or being a dad or just going to work and putting in your 40 plus hours Maybe you're retired. I know that all feels ordinary. We don't feel like kings necessarily. But God can do extraordinary things among us. And I want to call you to remain faithful to the task to which he has called you to. It's not about us being great. It's about our Savior being great. It's about us being faithful because he's faithful. and He's allowed us to respond in faith and trust. We get to be a part of this extraordinary story, a room full of ordinary people. Look what God can do with ordinary people. Be encouraged this morning. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you that we don't need to be great or accomplish great things or be kings or prophets. God, you use us as we are, broken, fallen, dependent on Christ, ordinary people. Some of us are in sales, some are bankers, some are police officers, some work at a refinery, some are truck drivers, some of us have government jobs. We're just a group of ordinary people who love Jesus. God, I thank you that you chose to reveal your wisdom, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, through ordinary means, not through philosophers like the Greeks were looking for, just through ordinary means. God, I pray that we would be a content people, not dissatisfied with our ordinary lives, but seeking rather your glory through them. God, we're encouraged by Saul's finest hour, his one chapter of doing something great. But God, we see too that he was just an ordinary guy and you called him for a specific purpose. God, I pray that you would encourage the family here at First Baptist in our ordinary lives to remain faithful to the task to which you have called us to, whatever it may be. Give us great contentment in life and great anticipation as you work and move through us. You're a great God, and it's a joy to be in your service. We praise your name. In your son's powerful name we pray.